You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. We're calling Firm Foundation. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So I will confess to you a problem that seemingly has plagued me much of my life. Maybe you've been in that same position. Here it is. I can fail to understand the depth or the magnitude of what a commitment may be. What do I mean by that? So I remember as a kid and you think, hey, I'm going to go out and play basketball. Rather simple, right? Two jobs. You want to put the ball in the basket and you want to keep the other team from putting the ball in the basket. But there's more to it than that, right? I think about when I got ready to uh, go into college and I'm moving out of the house. I'm thinking, you know what this means? This means I don't live at home anymore. I'm in control of my curfew and I will go to class when I want to go to class. Turns out there are more to it than that. I go to get married. I'm going to have a roommate and I'm going to have a teammate to accomplish life. Turns out there's more to marriage than that. I'm going to become a parent, be a dad. I'm going to roughhouse, I'm going to teach them to throw and catch, help them with their homework, then we're going to send them on their way. Turns out there's more to parenting than that. Going to become a pastor, I'm going to love Jesus, and I'm going to love people. There's more to it than that. Everything in my life, I've started talking about the fact that I started riding a bicycle this year. I'm going to get on the bike, I'm just going to pedal and ride that bike from A to B. How hard can it be? I didn't factor in things like hydration. I didn't factor in calorie intake. Over and over in my life, I can reduce whatever I think I'm facing into rather some bite-sized chunks that seem to be tasks that I feel like behaviorally I can do. Now, maybe you're there too. My concern is this, through all of those things we can learn, but what happens in our spiritual life? What happens in those moments in our spiritual life where we think, okay, I'm going to walk with Christ and I'm going to reduce those things in my life to a couple of behavioral kind of things that I can say, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk with Jesus and pick your two things. I will sing the songs and I will read my Bible. What if there's more to it than that? Well, it's against that backdrop that we come into our new study I invite you to open up your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew records five different lengthy discourses where Jesus is teaching. This is the longest of the five. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually been called maybe the greatest teaching that's ever been offered to our world. Jesus teaches us this, and as he begins to walk through it over and over, what we're going to be finding is this reality, is that he's going to say it's deeper than maybe what you thought it was going to be. The spiritual life is all-encompassing. Much like I can't be just a husband that is a roommate and a teammate, it's way more all-encompassing than that. And what we come to is our Christian life, our Christian faith, to be practiced as God calls us to practice it, is going to be an all-encompassing kind of thing too. The video that led into this, you heard somebody reading this in Aramaic. That obviously was not Jesus's voice. But those were his words. The people who gathered for this sermon, that's exactly what they heard. We laughed at the end of the first service. Somebody said there was no closed captioning. Here's the deal. 
Matthew chapter 5 is your closed captioning. You could have turned there and, and seen it. But when we come into this, we've called this the firm foundation. That's what we're calling this series. It comes from really the end of this message. You may be familiar with this story. Matthew chapter 7, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Part of what Jesus says when he gets to the end of this message is he says, here's what's going to happen. Storms will come. Storms come on everybody's life. You've had storms. He says, the difference is this. What foundation you build your house on will determine whether or not your house withstands the storm. So when he gets to the end of this message and he says, everyone who hears these words, the words that we're going to spend the next several months talking about, if we hear these words and we follow these words, when the storms of life hit, your house will stand. Part of it is this desire that if your house isn't standing currently is that we learn how to build the proper foundation. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to the, his words, and we're going to go through this and work through this. Now, as we come to this, I want to call attention to this, is this is about a radical, all-encompassing transformation of your life. This isn't behavioral. This isn't, let's reduce basketball or college or marriage or fatherhood or pastoring or bicycling to one or two bite-sized chunks. Jesus isn't trying to tell us how to make life work on our own. He's calling us to his radical transformation that we allow Christ into our life and we allow him to touch every aspect of our life such that we become transformed. This isn't about perfection. This is about progress. Is that as we walk with him, as we learn to lean into him, is that he begins to transform our life that we may understand the things at the rate at which he called us to understand them from the very beginning. He's taking words that have been there and he's applying them. And what we see is they go much deeper than we could have ever possibly imagined. So it's with that, I invite you to look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And we see this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, as Jesus is teaching, he's been moving through the countryside. He's teaching with authority. But his, the crowds are growing and growing and growing. People want to hear him. I want to know what's going on. What makes him so unique? What is going on in him? Well, if you look up just a few verses in chapter 423, you'll see part of what's happening. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread. Well, of course it did. He keeps showing up. He keeps teaching. He's connecting dots that nobody had ever been able to connect before. But even the most pragmatic person is saying, well, I've either got an ailment or a disease or something going on. I've got a loved one with an ailment or a disease going on, and we're not finding any relief. But Jesus shows up, and he's bringing healing. Well, of course his fame is growing. Hey, have you heard about this? We had a, someone who was blind, and they couldn't see. But guess what? All of a sudden, Jesus comes to town. We brought this loved one to Jesus, and their sight is back. Of course his fame is growing. Look at verse 24. So his fame grew throughout Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. Well, that's not hard to imagine. So everywhere he goes, crowds are coming. That's one of the two words. He gives, Matthew records for us two words. The crowds are coming, and then he uses this word, disciple. 
He uses this word disciple. And in our context, so often when we hear the word disciple, we, we actually fill that word in as meaning a mature believer. Think with me, if you've been around church for a while, you can say, well, I was discipled by, or I am discipling a person, or I am a disciple. And we speak about it in, a, in the terms of a mature faith. Scripture doesn't use it that way. Jesus was talking in Aramaic when he would have delivered this message, but the New Testament is actually written in Greek. And there's just one word in the Greek for disciple, and it's this one word, methetos. So we see it used in a number of different ways. So when we think the crowds come and the disciples are listening, we've got to think in terms of who is listening to this message, So let me show you some ways that the word disciple is used. John 6, we see this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus is teaching, and these disciples are saying, this is hard. Jesus knew what was going on in them, that they were grumbling. They're complaining about what Jesus is saying. And he, Jesus says to them, but there are some of you who do not believe. There's disciples who do not believe. After this, many of his disciples turned back and walked and no longer walked with him. Because at the core of the word disciple simply means this, a student or a learner, somebody who is checking out the claims of Christ. We would hope that we've got folks on our campus today that have recognized that the storms of life have hit them and they're saying, it's washing away my house. I don't know what to do. Life doesn't work. And so you may be here this morning saying, Tell me more about this Jesus because the storms have hit my life and my house is gone. I don't know what to do about it. And if you're a curious disciple, we are so thrilled that you are here to say, tell me more about Jesus. First level of a disciple, I do not think is a believer because you could walk away. Jesus himself said, some of you do not believe. But then we move to the second level of disciple. This is when Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And the first of many of his signs Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's a great miracle. It's a double miracle. Not only did Jesus turn water into grape juice, but he's also over time, and so he immediately fermented the grape juice into wine. But we have at the end of this, the disciples said, okay, this guy's different. I think he's who he says he is. They believed in him. You're who you say you are. It doesn't mean they're willing to walk with him yet. Think with me, if you know Christ, you may have had a moment where you thought, okay, I understand the gospel. I understand who Jesus is. I understand his claims. I think that's probably true. I don't know that I'm ready to commit my life to him yet. I don't know that I'm ready to walk with him. Salvation may occur at this step or it could be at this next one. Jesus told his disciples, same word as those who didn't believe in him, only this time he tells them, and he says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Clearly, this person's come to faith because they're saying, Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. So I'm going I'm to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross of allegiance to you, and I will follow you. So somewhere between the committed, excuse me, yeah, the convinced that says, I know you're who you say you are, And the committed that says, you're calling all the shots in my life, a person comes to faith. If you look further, there's still a fourth one. 
the Lord appointed 72 others. Clearly, the reference is from chapter 9 of Luke, where he uses the word disciples over and over and over again. And he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So whether or not you're here this morning and saying, I'm curious, I just want to check out his claims. I'm not obligating myself to him. We're glad you're here. If you're the convinced and you're saying, hey, you know what? I believe he's who he says that he is. I'm not sure that I'm ready to commit my life to following him with that. We're glad you're here. If you're here and you say, you know what? I'm not only convinced, but I'm committed. I'm all in on having him direct my life. We're glad you're here. And for those who are here commissioned and saying, hey, you know what? Count me in as a laborer because the harvest is great and we don't have enough laborers. And you say, I'm all in. When we look at this verse, chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, all of these people, some who are coming with agendas. Hey, I've got, a, I've got a family member who's sick. Whether or not you're there with an agenda or you say, hey, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. I need to hear from you. To those who are saying, hey, keep, keep filling me up, Lord, because I'm serving you. Wherever you are, we're glad that you're here. And in this message, all of these people are on the side of this hillside. Look down at verse two. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, he's gonna teach them here in a minute. Um, and we're gonna look at this. There's nine beatitudes that are coming. If you're familiar with this, if you've ever heard the word, you may think, where did this word come from? So here's where the beatitudes come from. They're known as blessed sayings. And they were designated the beatitudes because the expression of each one was blessed is or happy is, okay? Now, Hebrew, we're going to look at that in a minute where this word appears, uh, ashray. Greek is makarios, which is the word we're looking at here. Latin was beatus. That's where we get the word beatitude from. You probably had connected that already. So if you just want to translate the word, you translate it blessed is or happy is. The thing is, happy, however, doesn't really serve our purposes very well anymore because it's spiritually devalued in modern usage. That'll become abundantly clear when we start reading these in a minute. They're going to be like, happy is this? This doesn't seem very happy. So let's come up with a different word. If you would allow me to change our understanding of the word so that we move away from happy to this. The idea is that of a fortunate, blissful state based not on your worldly circumstance, but on a divine condition. Because we're going to look at nine different Beatitudes here, the, the first four have to do about we depend on God, the next three are if we live for God, and the next two are if we suffer for God. Depend on God, live for God, suffer for God. And each one of these nine begins with a proclamation, which is how fortunate. And then it gives you the condition, and then it gives you a promise. How fortunate it is if you have this characteristic, and this will be your promise. But when we think about fortune, being fortunate, let me give you an example of how it appears in Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You could say, I mean, we could maybe make happy work here. Happy is the person who isn't surrounded by wicked sinners and scoffers, right? I mean, we can maybe make happy work there, but let's change it to fortunate. How fortunate is the person whose fear is not filled with those who are wicked sinners and scoffers, How fortunate is a person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, now we get the context for how this word's going to appear. So let's move into this and look down with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See why we need to move away from the word happy? Because I don't know that anybody is going to say, you know what, man, I just love being poor in spirit. That makes me so happy. See, that's not where it's going to go. See, the first one of these beatitudes is, speaks of the promise or the reward in the present tense. The last two speaks in the words in the present tense. But the second through the seventh are all future tense. This is a present tense. How blessed, how fortunate is a person that is spiritually impoverished. Now, think with me. Obviously, this is requiring something that is internalized, not externalized. Poverty back then, much as may be assumed today, is certainly not something that we would aim for. So in a culture where the impoverished would have looked around and said, this is shame, this is embarrassment, this is ridiculed and scorned, is now all of a sudden you have Jesus taking the word impoverished or poverty and he's turning it into a positive. But he takes it out of the physical realm and puts it in the spiritual realm. When all of a sudden he said, how fortunate is the person that it has a poor spirit? Well, what does that mean? Well, it's got to mean more than the idea of just not having anything. No, it's the reality, as we've talked about already today, is that it says, I in and of myself have no capacity to bring my works before the Lord and brag or be rich in my works that I could in any way uh, span the chasm that created between me and God. No, it speaks of the reality that says, you know what? I recognize that in and of myself, I'm wholly incapable of pleasing the Lord. That doesn't come as a surprise. Remember our series we just finished, Hebrews chapter 11. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. We can't kind of please him. No, it's impossible to please him. And so when we come back to this, we look down and say, okay, so let's talk about it. And he says, you know what? Blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know how why it's fortunate that you would be impoverished in spirit? is there's a whole world out there that is looking around saying, you know what, let me be as good as I can be. Let me pull myself up by my spiritual bootstrap and let me do everything I can do so that I can possibly please God and span the chasm between uh, me and God that I can cross that and I can be in a good relationship with him. And Jesus says, you want to talk about a person who's fortunate. It's the person who's recognized that God's grace is the only basis for my salvation. So I don't have to try to do works. I don't have to wear myself out trying to cross that bridge because I can't. How fortunate I am to be poor in spirit because I recognize that my salvation is based on God and God alone and not what I do. And he turns around and says, you know what? There's is the kingdom of heaven. I've got a new king. It's not me. And I'm living and experiencing tastes and aspects of that kingdom now. I've been set free from what this world has to offer. How fortunate is a person that's impoverished in spirit. All of a sudden, the spiritual bankruptcy says, you know what? It's about Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and his call to me of grace. And all of a sudden, I move into being impoverished, but I've inherited the entire kingdom of the king. See, what an incredible gift. How fortunate. Happy? Let's move happy. How fortunate is the person who's impoverished in spirit? So he carries it a step forward. Look with me at verse 4. How fortunate are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's, let's recognize this. That, this is the first of those that are going to move us to a future tense. 
you shall be comforted. Let's be honest. There are pains in this world that may never get healed in this world. There are pains, many of you have experienced them, that are so deep. And as you walk in them, the idea is, the promise is that there'll be comfort. And there will be comfort. We get a taste of it now. We get the fulfillment of it later. But it doesn't mean there's not comfort now. There is comfort now. For those of us that can lean into the Scripture and say, you know what, God, I don't understand, but you said you're going to work this together for good because I love you and I'm, and I'm called according to your purposes. I'm trusting that. And that comfort is a taste of the comfort. There's more coming. Vindication is coming. Loss is being returned then. But today, how do I make it through today? Oh, there's a taste of comfort. I can feel it. It's enough to keep me moving forward, but man, it hurts. If you think, nobody understands the pain that I've been through, I will concede. We don't have to understand your pain, but we all know pain. And of all the titles we sang about this this morning, and speaking about Jesus, looking ahead, I, the prophet Isaiah writes, says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I've always wondered, I can get behind so many of the different labels for the Lord that I get really excited, like, oh, that's a good look. King of kings. Man, I like that one. And then I come to this, and I see man of sorrows, and it always grabs me that our Messiah was a man of sorrows, and then it hits me. It's how grateful I am that our Savior understands how painful this world is and how much grief this world creates for us, that he was not above the pain of this world. He lived in it, and it became one of his names, man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And all of a sudden, when we come back and we look at these words and it says, you know what? There's going to be comfort today, but know this. How fortunate are those who mourn that are poor in spirit because ultimately, in the future, glory, reality for us. There will be comfort for you there. Everybody suffers the pains of this world. Those who are poor in spirit have this reality coming for them. Look at the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, those who are meek towards others, those who have been through life circumstances. They have an appropriate accounting of who they are and who they, what they bring to the table and what this life has guaranteed them versus what this life hasn't guaranteed them. There's a proper understanding for how that's going to go. And they've chosen the position of being meek. Our world doesn't always celebrate meek. But let me tell you, when Isaiah elsewhere writes on a scroll this, this prophecy, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we can look back and say, well, that points to Christ. But we hear those words here with all the scorn and the shame and all those things that could be associated with poverty. Jesus turns around and says, you know what? I'm here to deal with spiritual poverty, much deeper than financial poverty. I'm here to deal with spiritual poverty. And so when Jesus comes on the scene to introduce himself into public ministry, he could go anywhere to any of the prophets to introduce himself and say, this is what Messiahship's going to look like. And guess what passage he goes to? It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. The Lord walks in. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah to, to the 61st chapter. And then he starts reading, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. All of a sudden, oh, 
This is him. This is what Isaiah was writing about. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Certainly the impoverished of spirit, but certainly the impoverished of this world is you're going to be set free from some things, but I think mainly poverty of spirit because that's the greater problem. What do we do with God? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at the Beatitudes that we've looked at. I'm here for the poor in spirit. I'm here for those who are mourn. I'm here for the meek. Because the meek in this world can be exiled. But the promise, the proclamation is how fortunate. The characteristic is that you're meek. The promise, you will inherit the earth. All of a sudden, exiled on this earth in this life, inheriting this earth in the next life. What a tremendous promise. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A spiritual appetite for longing for righteousness. I want what the Lord wants. I don't like the evil of this world. It's the desire to see evil eradicated. Now, let's be honest. How sick and tired are we of turning on the news and hearing horror story after horror story after horror story? Evil runs rampant in this day. And yet when we read this, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Much like he just said, the poor in spirit. Now we got people who are starving and they're parched but it's not for food and water. It is for righteousness to prevail. Lord, I want righteousness to win the day. Well, look at his words. They shall be satisfied. There's a day coming when evil is done away with. It's not today. But you know what today feels like? Today feels a little bit like this woman at the well. John records this story for us in chapter 4. Jesus talking to her. She's come in the middle of the day by herself. Nobody's there. She's got to draw water up out of this well. It's hard work. It's in the heat of the day. She comes when nobody's there. Her life has gone sideways on her. And so she chooses a time of day that's, that's certainly inconvenient according to the demands of her physically, but nobody else is going to be there. So Jesus said to her, hey, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus just throws that out there. And that woman, with all that she's got going on in her life, I think she's like, wait a minute. A couple of things here. This water you're going to give me is going to be inside of me and it's going to spring up. I don't have to come here and draw the water. It's going to be less labor intensive for me. Sir, give me this water. No joke. We would say the same thing. This is the water I need so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's all of a sudden that water that we thirst begins to well up inside of us and we have it internally. She didn't understand it. The world doesn't understand it. If we walk with Christ and we move from that convinced to the committed, then that committed stage, we start sensing that water and it's doesn't, it quenches our thirst for the day. It doesn't quench it for all time. That's coming. That's not today. We taste it now, but one day it will ultimately be fulfilled. Isn't that the same thing of the Lord's Prayer that we'll get to? Is the idea that, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. 
He keeps us close to him. He keeps us close because the world would say, you know what, hunger and thirst for something else. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the only way that's going to get fed is if it's the well that I offer, the living water I offer, and it wells up in you. Keep coming to me. Let me give you the daily bread. You're not going to starve. You're not going to be parched. You're going to be okay. But one day I'm dealing with the evil. It's just not yet. Stick with me till then. Don't walk away from me because this is the only place it's going to be found. Evil, uh, Brennan Manning in one of his books uses this example where he talks about a young plumber who had just gotten his plumber's license and he goes to Niagara Falls and he's looking around, he ponders for a minute and looks around and then says, you know what, I think I can fix this problem. Think with me about how arrogant it is for us to think that we have the capacity to solve the problem of evil in this world. The calling is for you and I to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to long for the day when it's dealt with. There's not a tool that we have that can shut off the evil that is Niagara Falls in our world. We look to him. We long for him to do that and to bring that about. And we trust him. Proclamation, how fortunate is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. How fortunate it is that you long for righteousness to prevail. And know this, here's the promise. That will be satisfied one day. Look at the next one. This is where we move from depending on God to living for God. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Forgiveness of those who have or who are guilty against you, compassion for those who have needs. Forgiving, that doesn't mean that you give them an open access to run over you. There'll be consequences for sin. But choosing to release it because the idea of carrying that grudge will end up eating us up so that we would be merciful. I can extend forgiveness not because you deserve it, not even because you ask for it. It's just I'm choosing to release it. And when I see somebody with a need that I can choose to be compassionate and help and be a part of that. And I think the words of the Lord are particularly telling because it says, you know what? For you shall receive mercy. Uh Uh-oh. I really like being a consumer of mercy. I don't like as much being a purveyor of mercy. James says it this way. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphed over my judgment. It's triumphed over your judgment if you know the Lord. And we're called to be his agents, to go out into this world and extend mercy everywhere we go because it doesn't have to be about us. He's going to get to that here in a second. But we have the opportunity to go out and extend mercy to everybody out there. Look at this next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who have a single-mindedness to pursue the Lord, not the Lord and, not the Lord and, and, and. No, a single-mindedness. Lord, what you have for me is what I want, which is why I will deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. No, this is where he's calling me. I have other things that demand my attention, but my focus and my mind is set on the Lord and who he is, that I would move forward. You know, when we look at this, think about the things that this would eradicate. If we're going to be pure in heart, all of a sudden we're going to be free from sham, deceit, moral filth, because those things can't coexist in our heart at the same time that we have a single-mindedness to Christ. 
So all of a sudden, in our single-mindedness to Christ, we start pursuing him with everything. It eliminates hypocrisy. We don't have that in our lives anymore. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we're driven by the pursuit of righteousness in Jesus Christ and who he has and what he's called us to. And guess what happens when we do that? We shall see God. You're going to see the Lord. We'll begin to see him now. Those people have a single-mindedness to Christ. They can see Christ at work now. Even in the midst of the hard things of life, the mourners, they can see God in it now. Not fully, but they can see his hand, how he's at work, what he's doing. That's all part of it. See, when you depend on God, you begin to live for God. And now all of a sudden you can be merciful. You can be pure in heart. You can have the single-mindedness in pursuing Christ, which ultimately, look at where that takes us. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Proclamation, how fortunate it is if you can be a peacemaker because the reward is you'll be a son of God or a daughter of God. Of course, because you're part of his agency to go make a difference in this world. But when we think peacemaker, he's talking to people who would know the the idea of shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And it means more than the absence of conflict, whether or not it's internal conflict or external conflict. See, when you talked about being shalom, it was a sense of being complete. You were whole. You had this emotionally healthy well-being. And for those of us who know the Lord, if we've been made complete, if we've been made whole because we began with uh, poverty of spirit, now we can mourn, now we can be meek, now we can be merciful, now we can be all of these things. Now I can walk out in the world and I don't need this world to come through for me because I have a wholeness and a completeness that can only come from the Lord. And now we become peacemakers. Now we take the peace that he's given us and we bring that into the world and we establish peace with others, which is why we can be merciful. We can let go of things. Doesn't mean there's not consequences, but we can let go of things. And I'm sure I'm thankful that when Paul writes this in Romans 12, because I can be a bit neurotic about things, if possible, it may not be possible. So as far as it depends on you, and it may not depend on me, live at peace with all. So let me say that two ways. Let me say it in the positive. If it's possible and it's on you to make it right, then go make it right as the peacemaker because you've been made whole and complete. So go do that. And if I don't have those caveats in there, I would drive myself bananas. But here's the good news for me and maybe you. It may not be possible, and it may be on the other person's shoulders. And if so, there might not be peace. But you do what you can do as a peacemaker because you've experienced the shalom of God, you've been made whole, you've been made complete, and you've got a well-being that the other person may lack. But go after it and take the opportunity to do that and be that person It matters to Jesus, right? One of his titles, what? The Prince of Peace. He's offered it to us. The invitation is for us to take it into a world of chaos and offer peace to this world as people who've experienced it. Those who suffer for God, because surprisingly, this world doesn't always celebrate people who walk with the Lord, right? You've noticed that. And you and I can look around and say, it just feels like we never win. If we show grace, somebody gets mad at us for showing grace. You don't have a backbone. 
If we don't show grace, you're rigid, you're no different than the rest of the world. There's no way to win in this world. Which is why I think that when Jesus offers us verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're back to present tense. The first one is present tense, all the other ones have been future tense, and now we're back to present tense. Blessed are you when people persecute you for righteousness. Not when they persecute you for being a fool. Not when they persecute you for being difficult. But when you're persecuted for righteousness, when you're persecuted for being impoverished or mourning or meek or hunger and thirst or merciful or pure in heart or a peacemaker, the Lord's words to us are really, really strong. This world is full of opposition. And what really strikes me, and I don't know why I missed this or why I think, you know what? The world should celebrate the church, right? I mean, we should go out in the world. We should love the world. We should do all these things. And then I come to Jesus' words in John 15 where he says, hey, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. I think that's part of Jesus saying, hey, you know what? If people hate you, it may not be about you. It's about me in you. How do I know? Because he goes on to say, but because you're not of the world, that's why they hate you. Because you're not of the world. You think differently than this world, and it exposes them. Why is it that if Jesus says, hey, you know what? You, don't wanna under you can't understand why somebody would persecute you. You and I have a problem with sin that we struggle with from time to time. Jesus didn't have that problem, and he still ended up on a cross. And somehow you and I are like, you know, past should be easy. I mean, I want to love people. I don't love them perfectly, but I want to love them. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be meek. I want to comfort. I want to do all those things. And Jesus just says, hey, reminder, they hung me on a cross. So you keep being who I call you to be. And as you look like me and walk with me, don't be surprised if the world does to you what they did to me, but that's okay. Because I'm not living for the world, I'm living for the audience of one. I wanna walk with him, I wanna honor him. Because all of a sudden what we see is this idea, you exile, you're exiled on earth, but you have the kingdom. Look at those words. When this happens, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We weren't made for this world, so don't live like this world. Live for the world that's to come. Live for this new kingdom that we've been invited into. We're going to get taste of the goodness of that now. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. I think he's just trying to expand it. All those appear in the same verb tense as though he's saying, hey, let me tell you what this world's going to look like. You want to know what persecution looks like? Here's what persecution looks like. They're going to persecute you, they're going to revile you, and they're going to utter evil against you that is not true. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. They accused him of all kind of things. Don't be surprised by it. On my account, rejoice and be glad, present tense, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad that you're reviled, persecuted, that people are speaking falsehoods against you. Which is why we need to remember the Lord said, hey, they hated me. They're not going to embrace you. If they embrace you, then it's because you look like the world. This has always been the case. Paul wrote about it in Colossians 1. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking Christ's afflictions. Does that mean that Christ's death was somehow inadequate? No, absolutely not. But whenever the church suffers persecution, 
it hurts Christ. And the church continues to carry that on today. It was true when Paul wrote it. It's true of us today. What's lacking Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church. As we keep being all of these things in this list for the sake of the church. Let me tell you, it's rough. It's rough. Matthew has a lot to encourage us as he records this sermon for us, especially for those that have been deeply wounded by this world, which is most of us. I don't think there's anything in this list that we could say has not touched us. But you know, let's be real clear. Let's draw a line in the sand here. I did my best to try to come up with opposites in accordance with, I think, the way Scripture does this. Fortunate are, Jesus says poor in spirit, the world's going to say the proud. Fortunate are the mourners. This world would say the happy. Fortunate are the meek. And this world would say the bold. Be really strong. The hungry and the thirsty, no. The world would say no. Fortunate are the self-reliant. How fortunate are the merciful, no, the rigid, the exacting, the harsh. Fortunate are the pure in heart, no, the shrewd. They know how to get by. They know how to make this life work. Fortunate are the peacemakers, no. Fortunate are the dominant. They want to win, and they always come through. Fortunate are the persecuted, no, the celebrated, the reviled, no, the popular. Make no mistake, there's no way these two things can coexist. They can't coexist exist. But when we look back at this, look back down with me, starting in verse 2. Look at the promises. If we live in the left column there, fortunate are what Jesus said. If we live in that left column, look at the promises. Kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheritance of the earth, satisfied, receive mercy. They shall see God. They will be called the sons of God. They will have the kingdom of heaven. And they will be able to rejoice and be glad in this world. The other list can't cash any of those checks. Jesus' promises, his proclamation, how fortunate. If you have these characteristics, you will enjoy these promises. Jesus said it. Paul said it. We experience it. Prophets, Zephaniah told us, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. When all who have believed on the fortunate right column of what this world has to offer see that it was all a fraud. It's hard. It's the reality. The proclamation how fortunate it is when we live according to the life that Christ calls us to because we live for an audience of one and he will fulfill his promises. We get a taste of it now. It will be met fully then. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.